Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello, everyone. I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm here today once again with Marilyn Monahan from Monahan Law Office, and we're going to be continuing our legal updates with part two today. Thank you, Marilyn, once again for joining us. It's a pleasure, Dorothy. I enjoy doing these podcasts and keeping employers informed about what's going on and what, what challenges they face and perhaps provide some solutions for them going forward. I want to remind everyone that we're recording remotely today, so please bear with us if we have internet interruptions, sound variations, dogs barking, trucks going by, and so many other external noises. But I'm sure you can all relate to this as we're all working from home these days, so please bear with us. Before we get started with our scheduled discussion uh, today on non-COVID-19 legislative update topics, I want to go back to part one for just a few minutes, because during the break... Uh, between Part 1 and Part 2, of course. Governor Newsom signed into law several new pieces of legislation. We knew something like this would happen, right? Including one that's very much related to our Part 1. Governor Newsom signed into law AB 1867, which is legislation that extends paid sick days protection to California workforce. It's reported that AB 1867, a budget trailer bill, closes gaps in paid sick days in federal law and expands it to employers over 500 employees. And this is pretty important because this goes above and beyond FFCRA. So can you please update us on this? I'm happy to, Dorothy. And this is, in fact, important news for many California employers who thought that they were exempt from the paid sick leave provisions in FFCRA. And even though they may be exempt from those paid sick leave provisions, the state of California has now created a very similar obligation at the state level. AB 1867 is a very important bill, and I want to summarize the supplemental paid sick leave provisions in it. So first of all, It provides that covered workers must receive COVID-19 supplemental paid sick leave if they work for what the bill calls a hiring entity. With regard to private employers, the bill defines a hiring entity as a private employer with 500 or more employees. So in other words, if you were exempt from the paid sick leave provisions in the federal FFCRA, you're may very well now be subject to the paid sick leave provisions in California's AB 1867. Also, with regard to all public and private employers of any size who employ emergency responders or health care workers, you must also provide paid sick leave benefits to those individuals, which would include those who might be excluded under the FFCRA. These provisions must take effect not later than 10 days after the bill was signed by the governor on September 9th. In a separate provision of the bill, they added paid sick leave benefits for food sector workers, and that provision is retroactive to April 16th. Employers should also know that there that there is a limit on the benefits that have to be paid out, just like under FFCRA. There's also going to be a notice and posting requirement. The labor commissioner has a few more days before they have to issue a model notice that will be available to employers. A big question for all employers who are subject to these new AB 1867 provisions is how long do they last? And the answer is the bill's requirements to provide COVID-19 paid sick leave for covered workers expires on December 31, 2020, or upon the expiration of any federal extension of the emergency paid sick leave provisions in FFCRA, whichever is later. Finally, I want to mention two other points that employers in the state of California should keep in mind. AB 1867 creates paid sick leave benefits for individuals impacted by COVID-19. But there's another broader bill sitting on the governor's desk, SB 
1383, which would expand leave benefits generally in the state of California. And one way in which it will do that is it expands the number of employers who will be subject to the California Family Rights Act, or CIFRA, and will also expand the bases on which CIFRA can be taken. And if the governor signs this bill, and there's speculation that he will, it will mean, as I said, more employers will be subject to CIFRA, and there'll be more grounds on which employees can take CIFRA leave. And these new rights will extend beyond COVID-19. And the final point I wanted to make is that in order to implement FFCRA, the Department of Labor issued a set of regulations. Those regulations were challenged in court, and at least one court decision came down stating that the DOL regulations could not be supported by the language of the statute. So the DOL responded to that by issuing some revised regulations last Friday. So that's another item for employers to keep their eye on. Bottom line, there's a lot going on these days at both the federal and the state level with respect to COVID-19, as well as benefits generally and the workplace. So employers need to keep their eye on all federal and state developments, both legislative and regulatory. And if they have any questions about implementation, they should consult their legal counsel. Absolutely. Thank you for that update. And I just want to go back to the one thing that you said, and that is it was signed into law on the 9th of September, and you said it would be effective 10 days within 10 days after that. So an important date for employers to keep in mind then would be September 19th, 2020. Absolutely. So it doesn't give employers a lot of time to gear up and get ready um, if they previously thought they weren't subject to the law. Yes. And I have some clients that this will definitely affect. So they'll be uh, not happy to hear this, but uh, they will be happy to know that uh, we're informing them for sure. So moving on, now we can talk about what we are really scheduled to talk about here in uh, part two. So let's start off by talking about AB5, the Independent Contractors Law in California. Can you remind us again who this is all about, what industries were exempted, who's challenging it, and how the November ballot could affect all of this? It's interesting that back in January, AB5 was the hot topic in California, and we thought that we would be spending months talking about AB5 and putting on webinars and writing up uh, articles on how it applied. And then the pandemic hit, and it sort of got pushed to the back burner a little bit. However, AB5 is still an extremely important law. It's still on the books. It still applies to employers, and you really need to have an understanding of what it is all about. If you have independent contractors, you need to understand what AB5 is all about because you need to be certain that you're properly classifying them and that they really are independent contractors and not common law employees. So what is AB5 all about? A couple of years ago in 2018, the California Supreme Court issued an opinion called Dynamex or Dynamics. There's debate as to how to pronounce that. That created a new test called the ABC test that employers have to use for certain purposes in order to determine whether or not someone qualifies as an independent contractor or a common law employee. Because if they're a common law employee, they're entitled to wage and hour protections um, and a whole host of other requirements start to kick in um, for the employer once that employee-employer relationship is created. The Dynamex case, as I said, created the ABC test. And the Dynamex case was focused on wage and hour issues. Along came the legislature last year and passed, and the governor then signed AB5, which codified the ABC test so that it now applies not only to wage and hour issues, but most other labor law issues, if not all labor law issues, in the state of California. So, for example, it now governs who should be covered by your workers' compensation policy, as well as who is entitled to the protections of the California wage and hour laws. As a result of the AB5 test, it has generally been presumed that a lot more individuals who will previously categorized as independent contractors are now going to have to be treated 
as common law employees by the employer. The consequences of misclassifying individuals, calling them independent contractors rather than common law employees, can be very expensive for employees if those individuals later bring suit. So an employer with independent contractors really needs to sit down and consult um, an employment attorney to go over the terms and conditions on which that that individual is providing services to the employer to make certain the individual is properly classified. Another thing to keep in mind is if you do have to reclassify certain individuals as common law employees, not only does that impact wage and hour issues, workers' compensation, et cetera, it also impacts their status under your employee benefit plans in many circumstances. It may mean that they are suddenly eligible to be covered by your health plan, your vision plan, your dental plan, and so forth. It may mean that you might now have to start counting them for purposes of determining whether or not you're an applicable large employer, whether or not you're entitled to uh, purchase small group coverage, or whether you're now considered a large group employer, whether or not you have to provide them with a Form 195C every year. So the implications of reclassifying people um, can um, uh, be significant. Now, as I think you alluded to at the beginning, Dorothy, there are a number of exceptions built into AB5. I don't know that I've ever seen a California law with so many exceptions built into it. Right. However, do not assume that the exceptions eat the rule. You may still find that the ABC test will apply in your situation. You should also keep in mind that the exceptions um, and the professions identified as part of the exceptions are all defined very specifically in the statute. And you also have to satisfy, in certain cases, very specific criteria to qualify under one of the exceptions. So again, please check with counsel before you make an assumption that someone falls within one of the exceptions. And also keep in mind that if an exception applies, it doesn't mean that the person is automatically an independent contractor. The way the statute is written is, if an exception applies, it may just mean that a different standard for determining whether they're an independent contractor versus a common law employee applies. So it may mean, for example, that the old Borello case factors apply instead of the ABC test applies. So would you like me to go through what some of those exceptions are? Yeah, please. Please do. So there are several categories, and I'll, I'll just highlight these. There's one category that they refer to as the specific occupation category. This includes insurance agents and producers. Um, it, it includes certain healthcare professionals, all of these defined terms. It includes lawyers, architects, engineers, private investigators, accountants, securities brokers, investment advisor, direct sales salespersons, as described in Section 650 of the Unemployment Insurance Code, and commercial fishermen working on an American vessel. I thought that one was quite so interesting. I, thought, I, I like that one. And there are a lot of rules in connection with the commercial fishermen working on an American vessel. That's what I mean about it. It's very specific at times. Mm -hmm. um, another category is what we refer to as contract for professional services. So this might be people who do certain types of marketing work, which is defined as both original and creative. Um, importantly, this would include certain HR consultants. It includes travel agents, graphic designers, grant writers, fine artists, enrolled agents with the IRS, payment processing agents, still photographers and photojournalists, freelance writers, editors, newspaper cartoonists, and certain licensed cosmetologists, and so forth. Um, there's another category that applies to real estate licensees and repossession agencies. I'm not certain why they were put together, but they were. Yeah. Um, another category for business-to-business -business contracting. Um, that may apply for some of the people that provide outside services for you, but again, there are very specific criteria that have to be satisfied to meet that exception. Finally, there are exceptions for construction industry, referral agencies, and motor clubs. With all that in mind, a few pointers I want to add to follow up on the original questions that uh, Dorothy uh, raised. 
you should know that there are several bills pending in the legislature this year that would tweak AB5, that would tweak some of these exceptions or maybe add some additional exceptions. The legislature just um, went on recess, and right now um, a number of bills are before the governor on a number of issues affecting the workplace. So we'll know within about a month um, whether or not any of these bills have passed. There's also a proposition on the November ballot, Proposition 22, which will establish a different set of criteria for determining whether app-based transportation professionals, such as rideshare companies and delivery drivers, should be considered employees or independent contractors. Um, something that might be helpful to those of you um, who are listening is that the Employment Development Department, EDD, has issued a number of information sheets that summarize some of the issues related to AB5, and they've also been offering webinars on this topic. I sat through a three-hour webinar on the topic just last week. As I as did so I. There is yeah. State- yes, I did the same thing. You, oh, you sat through that as well? Yeah, you told me about it, and I signed up, and I sat through it as well. Um, so, yeah, they've done those, and they'll continue to do those, and that's great information, but as you said, it's going to be changing, um, so it's going to be interesting. I want to come back to something you mentioned on Proposition 22, just because the November ballot. Um, We've already started seeing um, a lot of TV commercials on this, so I just wanted to make sure that people were aware of that's what this is all about. It's related to this particular uh, this particular law, which is um, the AB5 uh, Independent Contractors Bill. That's what Proposition 22 is all about. You'll see all the people talking about their, you know, their need to work independently and that sort of thing and, and uh, trying to influence you, of course, to vote on that. And I'm not saying one way or the other on that. I'm just saying that that's, that's, what those, um, that's what those TV commercials are all about, just as a friendly, you know, kind of reminder on that. That's what they're talking about is AB5. Well, Uber and Lyft and some of the other uh, rideshare companies and delivery services have, for uh, uh, obvious reasons, have taken a very strong interest in the fate of AB5. Right. And that's, uh, as you said, that's what Proposition 22 is all about. Yeah, and they're definitely putting a lot of money into into the TV ad campaign on that as well. So, that's, like I said, don't think you're going to be seeing less of those commercials. You're going to be seeing more and more of them as time goes on and we get closer to November, <laughs> for sure. Um, let's change Absolutely. gears. I know. Let's change gears a little bit uh, to the ACA. Um, the affordability percentage has increased, which it does pretty much every year. Can you tell us a new percentage or remind our listeners why this is important? The ACA affordability percentage uh, is an important issue to to uh, be concerned about, particularly this time of year, because a lot of employers are going into open enrollment season. Um, the affordability percentage, as you said, does adjust each year. Sometimes it goes down, uh, but this year it went up a little bit. For calendar year 2021, the percentage is 9.83%, which is up from 9.78%. For 2020. So I want to remind so people. The is- yeah, I want to just remind people, like Anthony in my office, who does the charts on this on on the affordability. It is now up from nine point seven eight to nine point eight three. Sorry, I just wanted to throw that in for the people that are actually doing the work and making sure they're informing their clients of what uh, what that percentage means as far as their their hourly wages or whatever the situation is. Sorry, go ahead. Please continue. <laughs> No, absolutely. That number is is critical to know because um, as open enrollment season rolls around, um, employers are going to have to figure out how much they're going to ask employees to contribute toward the cost of coverage in light of premium changes and plan changes and so forth, but also to satisfy these affordability requirements of Section 4980H and the affordability percentage is an essential component of those calculations. Right. So to provide a little bit of background, if you are an applicable large employer under the Affordable Care Act, which we also refer to as an ALE, and you want to make certain that you avoid the Section 4980HB shared responsibility penalty, the amount you ask your employees to contribute for self-only coverage for your lowest cost plan cannot exceed this 9.83%. If it does exceed it, the coverage is not considered affordable, as that term is defined in the Affordable Care Act. And if the employee then waives your coverage, goes to a federal marketplace or covered California, buys an individual plan, and gets a premium tax credit to help pay for the cost of that coverage, the employer might find themselves facing a 4980HB penalty down the line. Now, to make things easier on employers, the IRS 
created three safe harbor methodologies that employers can use to calculate affordability. And these are the W-2, the rate of pay, and the federal poverty line safe harbor. And each year when you get your plan designs from the carrier and you get your premium quotes, then you need to sit down and make some determinations about using one of these, which safe harbor you're going to use um, and how much you're going to ask employees to pay based on these safe harbors. And let me remind you again, this is based on your lowest cost plan. So if you are an employer that offers, say, a more expensive PPO and a lower cost HMO, you're only worried about for this purpose, the amount you ask employees to pay toward the lower cost HMO. And you're also only concerned with the self-only premium. Employers do not have to contribute anything toward dependent coverage in order to avoid the 49808B affordability penalties. So the focus is your lowest cost plan and how much employees have to contribute toward self-only coverage. And you are, as, I, as I've alluded to, going to have to remake these calculations every year. So there's a couple of, uh, as I said, there are three methodologies you can use. The easiest one to calculate is the federal poverty line safe harbor. You use the federal poverty limit. This is an amount that's issued by the or announced by the federal government every year. And you use the one that's in effect within six months of the start of your plan year. So if you've got a plan year that starts on January 1, you can use the 2020 federal poverty line. So for the continental U.S., a one-person home, that limit happens to be 12760 for 2020. So running the numbers on that, that basically means that an employer can charge an employee up to $104.53 for self-only coverage for their lowest cost plan. And it's still affordable. That's if they're so that's using the federal poverty. Yeah, that's. I was just going to say that's if they're using the federal poverty line method. That's if they're using the federal poverty line. A lot of employers like the federal poverty line because it's easy. It's one sum across the board, um, and it's pretty clean that way to implement. On the other hand, it almost always results in the lowest contribution rate from employees. So if employers um, want to uh, ask their employees to contribute a little bit more toward the cost of coverage, then they're usually looking at rate of pay or W-2. I wanted to mention that, for example, our, a lot of our clients, the majority of our clients use the rate of pay um, as because to them, that's the easiest to calculate. So um, rate of pay is also one of the very popular safe harbors because it is relatively easy to um, calculate. The way the rate of pay safe harbor works is you multiply the employee's hourly rate of pay by 130 hours. It's not based on their actual hours. It's a formula. So it's always 130 hours. So let's say in 2020, an employee is earning $14 an hour, which will be the minimum wage in California for employees, for employers with 26 or more employees. So if they're earning $14 an hour, you multiply that by 130, then you uh, multiply that by 0 0.983. Basically, an employer could ask an employee to contribute $178.91 per month, and the coverage would be deemed affordable. Um, I won't go through a W-2 um, example, but that just that just gives you um, an idea of how some of the uh, safe harbors apply and the differences between the maximum contribution rates you can potentially charge depending on which safe harbor methodology you utilize for a given year. Right, right. So are there other issues that an employer should consider when uh, setting the employee contribution rates for the year? Yes. If you are covered by a small group health insurance policy in California that's employers uh, with 100 or fewer employees, then you have to satisfy the minimum employer contribution requirement and the minimum employee participation requirement. So that means that the carrier will ask you to, as an employer, to contribute a certain percentage toward the cost of coverage. Um, and they will also ask you to make certain that a certain percentage of your employees enroll in the coverage. Another thing to think about is um, whether or not there might be any municipal requirements with regard to the cost of coverage. This applies
applies to employers who have employees, for example, in San Francisco. The city of San Francisco has um, what they call the Healthcare Security Ordinance, or the HCSO, which requires employers to, to spend a certain amount uh, toward the cost of coverage for many of their employees. Um, and the reason I wanted to emphasize that today is because so many employees are now working from home. So you may be an employer who has an office in, say, San Jose, but now you have some employees who are working at home in San Francisco. Um, the law applies or the ordinance applies depending on where the individual works. So if you have a sufficient number of employees anywhere across the country, it is going to apply to those employees who actually work in the city of San Francisco, and that might be more employees than there were in the past as a result of the teleworking situation. The city of San Francisco has actually been doing some webinars, which I think they've also posted on their website explaining how all their various laws uh, impacting the workplace apply in the COVID-19 era we are all living through. So that's another helpful reference if you are concerned about that particular issue. You had mentioned the employer contributions and so forth earlier. I just want to make mention, uh, because this is an important issue right now because of COVID-19, um, that normally carriers have uh, minimum participation requirements and employer requirements. But if you're starting to walk into your open enrollment process right now and you're going out to bid right now, keep in mind that most of the carriers right now um, have really – um, lowered their requirements because of COVID-19. The idea is they want to make sure that they can get as many people covered as possible during this time. So just check with each carrier. And I've got here a list. It's 13 pages, I believe. Um, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I just, it's listed carrier by carrier. Most of the general agencies in California actually have this list, these types of lists available that you can make the, the uh, comparisons. But it, it basically lists by carrier what their standard participation rate was and their relaxed participation rates. So there's a lot, and the relaxed rates generally go from, say, April through the end of the year, or it might be a little bit different depending on the carrier. But I'm just going to give you one example. Um, for example, Aetna um, had a standard participation for groups of 1 to 100. 60% of eligible employees were required. And now, because of their relaxed participation, uh, beginning, I believe, for this particular carrier was April 1st through 1231 of 20, uh, for 1 to 4 people enrolled, 65% participation, and um, 5 plus enrolled, 25% participation, and a minimum standard of 5 enrolled. So if you go through the list, there's all kinds of different ones. For example, Anthem Blue Cross has uh, relaxed participation patient rules that were um, 70% for groups of 1 to 14 and 15 plus was 50%. They've changed their uh, participation requirements as well because of the relaxation rules for COVID-19. So they are like for 1 through 4 enrolled, 65% participation and 5 or more, 25% participation. So, I mean, they're all different uh, and the same with employer contributions. So what I suggest is that you know, as you start going through this open enrollment um, process this year, that you double check with your carriers because you may find that you have, if you're fully insured, you have uh, a lot more flexibility this year than you have in the past. And you might be able to meet those uh, participation and, and contribution requirements a lot easier right now because of COVID-19. So I just wanted to mention that. And just a reminder, those participation requirements are primarily applicable to small employer plans. Yes. Yes, because you had mentioned. Is that earlier. correct? Yes, that's for the one to one to one hundred market here in California. But you need to check um, with each of your carriers. They have, like I said, they do have. Most of them do have. Not all, but most of them do have special requirements right now. So I don't mean to be talking about one or two carriers and not the rest. I apologize if any carriers are listening. I didn't mention. I was just. I just happened to go alphabetical order the first two on the list. So I apologize. I didn't mean to, didn't mean to talk about one carrier, not another. But check with your check with your carriers and see what the rules are, uh, for sure. All right. Um, there were some changes in the ACA for the 4980H compliance rules related to the 2020 IRS forms 1094 and 1095. Can you update us on this? Yes, certainly. At this stage, the IRS has been issuing um, draft forms for the 1094C and the 1095C for the 2020 tax year. If you are an applicable large employer, an ALE, these are the forms you will have to file in early 2021 to show compliance with Section 4980H during the 2020 tax year. The draft form 1094C looks pretty much the same as the form uh, 
that was in use for 2019. So it doesn't look like they've made hardly any changes with regard to the uh, 1094C, at least based on the draft form that they've issued. With regard to the draft 1095C, that form has changed quite a bit, however. Um, and while it's changed quite a bit, the focus of the changes seems to be primarily on those employers that offer what they refer to as Individual Coverage Health Reimbursement Arrangements, or ICHRAs. It appears that if you don't offer an ICHRA, your reporting requirements under the 1095C will be pretty much the same. But if you do offer an ICHRA, then um, they have adjusted the forms so that you can um, report about the ICHRA to the IRS when you complete those documents. Another important thing to remember is that starting January 1, 2020, California instituted its own individual coverage mandate. There was an individual coverage mandate in the Affordable Care Act, but Congress eliminated that effective 2019, but effective January 1 of this year, it's effectively been reinstated um, at the state level um, in California. As part of the individual coverage mandate, there is also a reporting mandate included within the law. By the way, you'll sometimes see this law referred to as SB 78. That's the bill that was passed implementing it. Right. The reports that have to be filed have to be filed with the Franchise Tax Board as opposed to the IRS because it's a state requirement. And the Franchise Tax Board does intend to piggyback as much as possible on the Forms 1094 and 1095. So at this stage of the game, what we believe is going to happen is if you are a fully insured employer and your insurance company files the 1095B and the 1094B forms uh, with the Franchise Tax Board, you won't have any additional work to do. That's the way it looks right now. On the other hand, if you are a self-funded employer, then um, the 1094 and the 1095C forms that you file with the IRS will also have to be filed with the Franchise Tax Board. So they won't require you to complete additional forms, but they will require you to take the forms that you file with the IRS and also file them with the Franchise Tax Board. We're still in early days, so we're still looking and watching for developments um, on this topic, but that's the way things seem to be set up right now. Oh, that's good to know. And also, it's a good idea that employers remind their employees um, about this state mandate, because if they don't do that, uh, then their employees could be potentially looking um, at some individual penalties on their own tax filings. So this is the same, pretty much the same as it was on the federal basis prior. Um, but just during open enrollment, it's not a bad idea to to mention this and say, hey, by the way, federal government um, eliminated this, but effective January 2020, there is a state mandate for healthcare coverage. So if you don't have it, you're going to pay a penalty. So good thing to keep in mind, um, you know, during your open enrollment discussions for sure. There, there's also information on the Franchise Tax Board website um, through which you can uh, kind of estimate what a penalty might be. In fact, there's actually a penalty estimator. So for those employees who don't have coverage, they can enter the data and figure out exactly what they might be have to pay if they don't sign up for their employer's coverage in the new year. So that could be an additional piece of information for employers to provide to employees, especially some, maybe some of those younger employees who don't see the need for coverage. Um, maybe they'd rather have coverage than pay a penalty to the franchise tax board. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, there are a lot of new model forms that were recently released. Uh, can you update us on the new model forms and the notices and where they can get the latest versions? Yes. Um, interestingly, uh, despite all the things that have been going on um, with the pandemic, the Federal Department of Labor um, has been quite busy issuing a whole uh, series of new model forms that employers can use. Yes, they have so been for very example, busy. Very, sorry. <laughs> They've been very busy. They, <laughs> I can't keep up with them. It's crazy. Go ahead. Sorry. Continue. They have been very busy. Um, I, uh, they're, they're earning their pay. I would say. Um, so, several months ago, they issued two new COBRA model notices, the initial notice and the election notice. Um, they are 
There's various changes sprinkled throughout these forms from the earlier version of the uh, model notices the Department of Labor issued. Uh, the big change is they've added a section explaining to people how Medicare and COBRA work together. So that actually is important information for employees who are approaching their 65th birthday to know about or who may have passed their 65th birthday. So a couple of reminders with regard to those COBRA notices. Um, you should... Um, you can use the forms, they're a great starting place, but you still will be ultimately obligated to ensure that you meet all the legal requirements. You should also tweak them as necessary in order to address any specific circumstances uh, unique to your health plan. And interestingly, the notices are just general model notices. They don't address any of the changes that have been made um, as a result of the pandemic. So they are silent with regard to the pandemic, um, including some of the um, new regulations that have been issued on um, delaying employees' obligations uh, to elect COBRA coverage and pay their COBRA premiums um, in light of the pandemic. Another new form that came out, um, or an updated form that came out, is what is referred to as the Notice to Employees of Coverage Options. I think most of us in the, in the benefits world refer to this as the Exchange Notice. This is an ACA requirement. Employers have to provide this notice to new hires within 14 days of their hire date. So they issued a new version of the form. You can identify that easily because the new version expires on June 30th, 2023. Also, um, about a year ago, they issued um, an updated template for the Summary and Benefits and Coverage, or SBC, and the related glossary. Um, if you're fully insured, the carrier will provide these updated forms, but if you're self-funded, you will need to provide the updated forms. Um, and the new forms have to be put in use um, for plan years starting on or after January 1, 2021. So if you have um, an op if you have a new plan year starting January 1, 2021, you will see these new SBCs in circulation. Yes. Um, I, I, by the way, do those I, for my for my self-funded clients. I actually prepare those. So, yeah, I become very well-versed in those forms about this time every year. So. <laughs> they, by the way, those um, summary of benefits and coverage, those SBCs, can be very useful tools for 4980H compliance because they require the plans to state specifically whether the plans provide minimum essential coverage or MEC coverage and whether they provide minimum value coverage. And those are important factors in determining whether or not an employer owes a 4980H penalty. So I always advise employers um, to keep copies of their SBCs every year and put them in their 4980H compliance files. I find a lot of employers rely on their brokers to maintain these documents, which is fine, um, but I think that they should also um, have a uh, dual record-keeping system where they also keep copies of those documents so that if the IRS ever comes calling, they can provide that documentation. Yeah, that's very common. And when we've handled, uh, you know, uh, marketplace uh, appeals letters and things like that, um, the SBCs were one of the first things we would we would pull and uh, send, include in our letter of, of uh, you know, uh, response to the IRS related to those potential penalties and that sort of thing. The 226J letters and the marketplace appeal letters. So they're very handy um, things to keep on hand. You want to keep those in your own files for sure. For the marketplace appeal letters, they specifically ask you for the SBC, so yes, they're absolutely uh, very important to have for that. Um, as I mentioned in the last podcast, um, the family's first uh, law, the FSCRA, passed as a result of the pandemic, requires employers to post a uh, notice explaining the paid leave provisions if the employer is subject to the paid leave provisions in the FSCRA. So that should have been posted as of April 1. If you don't have it up yet, you should get it up now. And um, they also have some additional fact sheets and, and other materials that might be useful to employers um, internally as well as to communicate with their employees. Another important development is the uh, Department of Labor issued a whole series of new model FMLA forms. Um, this was something they issued in draft form about a year ago. They now issued them in 
final form, I guess I'll call them, um, a couple of months ago. So again, like with the COBRA notices, these are um, a very useful starting place for employers. They can be very helpful um, for um, you to start uh, instituting your FMLA compliance. But again, make certain that you tweak the forms as necessary to meet your specific circumstances as well as to ensure they comply with the law. I would also mention that if you are in a state like California where we have our own leave laws, you might need to tweak the FMLA forms so that you're in full, full compliance with California law as well. And then in the last podcast, I talked about um, the need for employers to potentially modify their health and welfare benefit plans as well as potentially their cafeteria plan um, in order to reflect all the changes mandated by Congress um, in coverage and benefits as a result of COVID-19 or some other provisions which weren't mandated but that employers might want to institute, such as mid-year election changes. In the event that you create summaries of material modifications or other documents to amend your plan materials, you may have to circulate those to employees so that they're aware of their rights and obligations and benefits under their plans. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about something else. In July, the Treasury Department, the Department of Labor, and HHS issued a proposed rule on grandfathered plan status. Can you tell us a little bit about this proposed rule and what would change? Yes. Well, as many of you probably know, um, when the Affordable Care Act passed, they did allow some um, employers to maintain what we call grandfathered plans. And basically that meant is if you maintained your plan over the course of the following years to look substantially like it was on the day that the ACA passed, they would not require you to implement certain other changes otherwise mandated by the ACA. Um, there were certain th changes you can't make to the plan. If you do make those changes, if you exceed the parameters that they set, then you will lose grandfather status and you'll have to um, supplement your plan terms. So there's still some grandfather plans circulating out there. There are almost none in the individual market, so that the rules I'm about to talk to, I'm about to tell you about, don't even apply to individual plans as a result. Um, in light of that, but there's still some group health plans out there, including some uh, self-funded group health plans that still are grandfathered. Yeah, so actually, actually the reality is um, we, we have a few fully insured plans that are grandfathered still, and we have um, the majority of our self-funded plans are still grandfathered, so just, just as an FYI. Well, the... Um, Treasury Department, Department of Labor, and HHS issued a joint set of proposed regulations. These have not yet been finalized. These are just proposed that will give grandfather plans additional flexibility to change some of the plan parameters without losing grandfather status. So specifically, they're going to give them increased flexibility to increase cost-sharing amounts without loss of grandfather status. For example, they could increase their deductible to certain high deductible health plan limits that comply with HSA compatibility rules without losing grandfather status. So it would allow the uh, high deductible health plan to um, conform to the statutory rules regarding high deductible health plans and HSA limits without losing grandfather status. They've also uh, proposing adding a new standard in addition to an existing standard for calculating increases in co-pays, again, to give plans more flexibility. Comments were due from the public by August 14. We'll have to see um, when those comments get processed and um, whether or not the final rules look the same or are ultimately um, changed from the proposed rules when they're ultimately issued. Yeah, and I'll definitely be staying on top of that because, as I said, it affects uh, some of our of our clients as well. Uh, well, here in California, there was a change to California's paid family leave program. Can you tell us about that change? Yes, absolutely. This is uh, one benefit that the um, the California legislature seems to like to tweak. We have seen a lot of changes to the paid family leave program um, over the last few years. The paid family leave program is something that employees pay into um, 
through payroll deductions. Um, it is a wage replacement benefit. It does not create a right to a leave, but if you take a leave for one of the designated purposes, you can receive wage replacement benefits from the state of California. It has always been that the wage replacement benefit under the PFL program was for six weeks. Effective July 1, 2020, the paid family leave benefit was extended to eight weeks. To provide a little additional background, you may be able to um, obtain paid family leave benefits if you take time off work to care for a seriously ill child, spouse, parent, grandparent, grandchild, sibling, or domestic partner. I would add that that would include someone who um, has um, uh, is suffering from COVID-19. So let's say you work for an employer who has over 500 employees and they're not subject to the paid leave provisions in FFCRA, an employee might be entitled to benefits or wage replacement benefits under the PFL program if they have to take time off to care for a seriously ill relative. You can also receive PFL benefits if you take time off to bond with a minor child within one year of birth, placement of the child in foster care, or adoption. Another change that we're looking at for the PFL program is effective January 1, 2021. Um, there were, you will also be able to receive wage replacement benefits under the PFL program if you have to take leave for a qualifying exigency. This is a circumstance that might arise if you have a family member who is serving in the military. Uh, the city of San Francisco has a program, the Paid Parental Leave Ordinance, with co which coordinates with PFL and requires employers to supplement PFL wage replacement benefits. Um, that ordinance was amended to parallel the PFL amendment. So as July 1, 2020, that, um, that ordinance extended uh, its mandate from six to eight weeks. It's also important for employers to know that um, there's been some bills circulating in the legislature this year, um, and we're going to wait to see how um, Governor Newsom responds to them, which would have an impact on paid family leave as well as CFRA, pregnancy disability leave, and the um, New Parent Leave Act. So keep an eye in the next month on some new developments from that regard coming out of Sacramento. Maybe not, but maybe so. Okay. So employers will need to know about it if it happens. For sure. So I will just be relying on you to tell me if that happens. <laughs> I'm kidding, but <laughs> I'll be paying attention to you. I will definitely keep you informed. <laughs> um, actually, I, I do uh, try to keep up on as much of that as I can, but uh, it's always nice to receive your, your legal updates. I like those because they're much more comprehensive. Um, I think most of you are aware, but just in case, let's talk a little bit about the harassment training deadline that's uh, fast approaching here in California. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of background on this. Um, many employers in California for the last number of years, I don't remember when this requirement initially went into effect, but were required to provide sexual harassment training for some of their employees. This is often referred to as AB 1825 training. So in 2018, the California legislature passed a bill, SB 1343, which expanded the state's mandate to provide sexual harassment training. There was then a lot of consternation about that because um, employers didn't feel prepared to implement it. So in 2019, they passed a bill, SB 778, to delay the implementation for one year. But that's implementation delay is now running out, and so the requirement to provide harassment training is now upon us. So as it stands now, employers of five or more employees must provide one hour of sexual harassment and abusive conduct prevention training to non-supervisory employees, and two hours of such training to supervisory employees once every two years. California-based employees must be trained so long as the employer has five or more employees anywhere. The deadline, the first deadline for completion is January 1, 2021. Another reason we're bringing this up, it 
in today's podcast is because the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, DFEH, has posted free online training courses for both supervisory and non-supervisory employees, along with some FAQs to explain to employers what the specific requirements are. So there's a link to this. Um, it's basically dfeh.ca.gov backslash SHPT. So, but again, you could probably find it quite quickly through a Google search. So that is one, um, uh, some, a number of employers were concerned about the cost of providing this training as well as how they are going to provide it to employees who are working remotely. So DFEH is providing employers with um, one additional option for setting up and scheduling that training. Yeah, that's really nice to know that you can do one that's that doesn't cost a lot of money because there are a lot of training options out there and the prices are all over the board and uh, it's mandatory training. Uh, and some employers, especially right now with being hit with all of the stuff that's going on with COVID-19 and everything, every dime sort of you know adds up and it all it, it's all important right now. So the fact that they're offering free online training courses for supervisors and non-supervisors uh, employees are that's 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 a good thing for employers to know because if you're budget's been tight um, and you're looking for ways to save money but still comply with the law, go in and check this out uh, at the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, as, as Marilyn said, and take a look at that and see if it's going to help you at all. That's really good advice. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, how can our listeners get a hold of you if they wish to contact you? Because you've been giving us so much great information today, and I'm sure that some are going to want to say, I want to talk to Marilyn. So how would they get a hold of you? or my email address is marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. That's pretty simple. That's pretty easy to do. Well, Marilyn, I want to thank you again for not only this podcast, but also part one last week. Um, Both of them have been very, very informative. This has been some great information, and we really look forward to doing this with you every season. And I'm glad that you've you've agreed when I begged you to do these podcasts with me. I'm glad that you agreed (laughs) to do that um, because I'm sure that a lot of people are finding this information very, very helpful. I will tell you, I didn't get a chance to tell you that your podcast in 2019 in our in the 2019 2020 season season one your podcast was the highest ranked podcast for as far as the number of listens you know number of people listening to the podcast that we had all year so i just wanted to tell you that and say thank you very much for that i appreciate it i didn't know if you, i don't know if i ever told you that but you were ranked number one as far as the amount of people that actually uh listened to that podcast i did not know that i'm glad to hear that i'm glad to i'm glad to hear that people found the information useful so that's that's great and they're fun to do with you dorothy i i enjoy the process oh thank you i do too it's been great and as for those of you that may not be as familiar marilyn and i've been working together for many decades uh she's been our uh our uh attorney at uh, advanced benefit consulting since pretty much both of beginning of both of our careers for the most part um <laughs> Let's say many years rather than many decades. Okay, let's just say many years. Yeah, <laughs> last yeah, five years at least, right? Since the beginning of our careers. <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much, Marilyn. I do appreciate it. And please stay safe, uh, stay healthy. And oh, by the way, Marilyn's in the process of moving right now. So good luck with finishing up your move as well. She was kind enough to do this podcast in the middle of her move. So thank you very, very, very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dorothy. Have a great evening. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835. Or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.